0: Often, I often say with privilege comes responsibility, and I take that responsibility very, very seriously. So what this means to me is that women who are of a younger generation than we are can see and in seeing can know that the possibilities are real. They're no longer the distant future, they're the present. I want our daughters, I want our nieces, I want them to see uh, that this is their future, and that they in many ways deserve a seat at the table, and that it is not, a, it's not charity to give them a seat at the table. That they have earned their place at the table.
1: Welcome back to the World Wise Podcast. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari. And on this show, I bring you my take on the intersections between education, culture, and migration. Conversations about why education is important in opening our hearts and minds to the world have never been more important as countries and individuals have increasingly turned inwards and away from each other and here to talk about all this today and to share how educational journeys, how being a global nomad across different countries and continents can lead to a life of being a nimble, just and globally aware leader. I'm so delighted to welcome my friend Ter, you got it, that's friend and mentor and colleague Dr. Fanta Orr to the show. We will talk more about Fanta's professional journey in the episode, but let me share quickly that she is the new executive director and CEO of NAFSA, the largest association of international educators and headquartered in the US, and that prior to this, Fanta held senior leadership roles at American University, where her work has always touched international and immigrant-origin students. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Fanta, I also have a special announcement to make. I'm so very pleased to welcome Empower Financing as the sponsor for this episode. Empower is the leader in no co-signer loans for international and DACA students. Many of you know of my own journey as an international student from India. I had been hearing about Empower for some years, but then got to know them much better when I had the opportunity to author their social impact report last year. Check out the show notes for a link to the report. I was amazed to learn that 91% of Empower students say that their loan was imperative to their ability to study abroad and that Empower is having a huge impact on groups such as women who want to pursue STEM and is also helping a more diverse group of students study abroad. Empower Financing is headquartered in Washington, D.C., and has helped tens of thousands of students from around the world reach their educational dreams across the U.S. and Canada. So check out www.empowerfinancing for more information. That's empower, which starts with an M, empowerfinancing.com. And now, on to the fabulous conversation with Fanta. Fanta, welcome to the WorldWise podcast. I'm so delighted to have you join me today. And we've been friends, we've been colleagues. So it's just a lovely opportunity to have you on today and talk about a whole range of things. So so welcome. Thank you,
0: Rajika. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Now, you know, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start right at the beginning about your journey because it is such a fascinating journey. And, you know, from some of our past conversations, I recall that you have often referred to yourself as a third culture kid, uh, or, you know, I think the acronym TCK is often used. So, how and where did your personal global experiences and journey begin?
0: Well, no, thank you for that question. And I guess now um, I probably will have to graduate to become a third culture adult. <laughs> that, tells you, <laughs> that tells you up front that I'm in denial about being an adult already. Um, so, yeah, no, the third culture, um, you know, adult, the third culture kid really comes from the fact that uh, since the age of seven, left Mali um, where I was born and both of my parents are from Mali and we left to move to Liberia when I was seven and went to international schools and from Liberia when I was 12, we moved to Washington, D.C., went to international schools and then we um, were here for five years and then again, we moved to Kenya, graduated from high school there and uh, came back to the U.S. So this is where my journey really started at the age of seven and like many, you know, uh, TCKs, The stories are different and yet similar. Um, In my case, it was really because at the time there was a military regime at home and my father being a civil servant, um, it just was not the place that we felt we could be. And so he was fortunate enough that we could um, immigrate in some ways to a different part of the world and in this case to another part of Africa. Um, And that experience really stuck with me on so many levels. Um, moving from place to place, going through a French educational system, um, given that Mali was a former uh, colony, a former French colony and all of that. Um, And the experiences that I had there with both the teachers and the students and the communities really stuck with me for the remainder of my life. Um, We often talk of global nomads as, you know, um, you feel at home everywhere and at home nowhere. Mm -hmm. That's the part that I think is the descriptor of it. Um, But also the way in which we see the world comes really from that prism and from that lens. Um, And that really is sort of how my journey really started.
1: Yes, very true that we sort of, uh, in some ways, you're no longer a citizen of any one country. You belong everywhere and yet nowhere. And uh, that is certainly, certainly the the story of uh, immigration. And, uh, you know, I always say that people somehow seem to think that as you get older, that that Process of negotiating what is home um, seems to get easier, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't.
0: Yeah. No, it, does, it does not. I think it does not. I think you always see yourself um, as somewhat transient. I think, mm-hmm. and I think because you see yourself as transient, it has both its opportunities and its challenges. I tend to think of it more as opportunities. Um, yeah. Because the other thing that we often talk about as third culture adults or third kids is that you're, you, you're almost in many ways the um, analogy is that of a chameleon. Um, you can adapt very quickly and you can pivot very quickly to change because you're accustomed to change.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we we can all attest to the fact that that uh, nimbleness and uh, ability to pivot is really coming in handy <laughs> during the pandemic, because every everything as we know it has been disrupted. And perhaps people who've had the sort of experiences you've had have, have have been able to um, really navigate this period successfully. So uh, moving into your career, um, we'll of course get to NAFSA, which is which is the big news since you took the helm of NAFSA just um, last month or in March of 2023. But um, going back to what you were doing right before and until recently, you were a senior institutional leader at American University in Washington, D.C. You'd, of course, been there for many years and in your most recent role, um, focused on campus life as well as uh, diversity efforts across campus. So, my question to you is given that you were working so closely with students, what are your thoughts on how? international students and immigrant-origin students. And of course, when we say immigrant-origin, there's so many students um, with different pathways who fall within that group. But even so, how do you think um, international students and immigrant-origin students are faring today, um, especially at a time when racial and immigration and, of course, so many health-related issues have really affected uh, certainly our country, but uh, definitely U.S. campuses?
0: Well, you know, this is an important question and one that is certainly near and dear to my heart for all the reasons that you can imagine. Um, I would characterize it as fragmented. I think um, for a lot of institutions, um, we continue to struggle with uh, what is the place and space that we really dedicate um, to international students and their experiences on our campuses. Um, I think it is often the case that we still leave it to chance, um, that students will find their way and that they'll find their communities um, and that they will adapt in the ways that they do. I think many of our campuses certainly provide um, you know what I would call consider baseline orientation to new students once they get there, um, depending on what their you know what their status may be as students, whether they're graduate students or undergraduate students. The graduate students will go through sort of the pathways that we know of graduate assistantships, research, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and we hope that in um, those avenues they'll find community. But I would I would say that we have much more work to do, um, ours our campuses our continues to just Um, struggle with the shifting demographic. And as we come out of the pandemic, um, you know, the pandemic has really had an impact on so many levels. We talk about mental health issues on our campuses. And as someone who oversaw mental health um, work, Mm -hmm. I can tell you for a fact that Rajika, there is no doubt that increased mental health needs were prevalent. And it was not just a domestic issue, it was really a global issue. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you're far away from home at a time when you're facing economic conditions, where the political situations continue to be what it is. um, And also where you now have the, you know, the added fear of health, of family members and your own health, et cetera, that does exacerbate the stress level. And so mental health and mental health support um, for students and international students, I think, becomes important. Um, And in my case, for example, at American University, we saw that our international students were utilizing our counseling center as a proportion of how they were represented. And mm. that is new. Because if you know traditionally, international students often, because of cultural uh, reasons, often would not use you know um, counseling centers in the way that you see domestic students use. So that in and of itself was an indicator of a shift, and a, and a shift that definitely was taking place. And undergraduate students coming in young, um, and where, again, there's so much change involved, and at a time of so much uncertainty. So I would say fragmented, much more work needed there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really the continuum of care that is needed. It is everything from helping them seek employment on campus because their visas are restricted. And many of them do depend on that, not only sometimes for a little bit of pocket money and other needs, but also that's one of the ways that they can get integrated within our campuses to the care, um, whether it's counseling, whether it's academic support, and then, more importantly, how we create a sense of belonging and a sense of community for them becomes important, and with them, um, because I've always said that international students have tremendous—you um, know—they bring tremendous assets with them. Um, and I always come from the perspective of it's not a deficit model, absolutely really asset-based model. And I think sometimes what happens on our campuses. We, the pendulum swing one way or the other, right? We either see it so much as a deficit model that in some cases, there's a danger of infantilizing, which is really not where we want to go. And then in other cases, you think of it so much as an asset model that you sort of think, well, they don't really need anything. The fact that they've come from so far, they figured it out. And I would say the, the balance is somewhere in the middle. We need somewhere in the middle. And no two students are the same. Um, and so we need to account for that. But starting with what is it that you need to be successful as a starting point and as a question and allowing students to help define that not only allows for their dignity, but also ensure that we are really providing the care that we're committed to providing when we say that we want students to be on our campuses and that we're a community of care.
1: Such important points, Fanta. And I, I love that term infantilizing them. I've actually never heard anyone use that before, but it so accurately captures Again, that same idea if you either can treat them as a deficit where they need support, they're sort of always the victim and and like you said, sort of uh, really… Um You know, not taking into consideration all the assets that they're bringing. Or then at the other extreme, as we know, I mean, I think many Asian students are a great example of this where, you know, you have the model minority myth and other myths that are perpetuated, not just about international students, but also other immigrant origin students who represent that racial and ethnic group that they're okay or that they're definitely going to succeed. But as we've learned over time, even amongst Asian students, there's a huge Range and diversity of of students. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think also
0: the racial climate in this country is not something that we can ignore. Mm-hmm. So particularly, you know, several of the incidents, particularly, um, you know, that were targeting um, our Asian Asian American students, and that you know generate tremendous fear, right? Because our students are not only on our campuses, but they live in communities. And so our ability to understand, you know, what is the safety and how how does all of that work and how do we provide, you know, sort of an ecosystem approach to this and to care, I think is a really important part of the work that we need to continue to do and to engage with.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, And, you know, one thing, and sort of getting into some of those issues around, uh, which I really want to talk to you about, you know, as we broadly think about access and inclusion and diversity, and of course, that that, uh, comes in many different forms. But one of the things is I sort of think back to all the years that we've known each other that I've really enjoyed in our interactions is that, you know, we both... Oh, our origins to the global South. I'm originally from India, as you just shared with us in this conversation. Your family's roots are in in, um, in in Africa and different countries, and I think, like you, so well said at the start of this conversation, it gives you a certain kind of sensitivity to sort of broader issues um, around uh, the world, particularly issues around access. And you know, we've both been. Part of um, many professional conversations around some of these issues about how the Global South has often been left out of conversations in international education, or to quite frankly put it another way, that the agenda of our field of international education is often driven by Global North countries, you know, rich countries, wealthy countries. Um so I wonder that do you think that there has been any change on this front and and how do you hope that NAFSA will begin to shift this dynamic? Again,
0: really important question, um, and one where you and I could spend hours on. Um, and we've had really some some important conversations about this. And so my reflections I think are at two levels. Um, in the sense that some things have changed. But I would say that it's changed not because we have initiated those changes. I think conditions on the ground have forced some of that change. So, you know, what would be an example of that, Radhika? One of the examples of that is um, the racial movement in the United States. I think as we've seen in the United States with the Black Lives Matter, um, with all of the things that we've seen and we continue to see, and what I would say um, are sort of the um, narratives that have changed. There is now, I think, a movement here in the U.S., but I would say it's not just in the U.S. There is a global movement for change. Those who have been voiceless are asking for a voice at the table. They no longer are just asking, they're demanding for a voice at the table. And so with that, I think it will force us, and it's forcing us to begin to, uh, in many ways, ask ourselves some questions. So I would describe it as it's a time of reckoning. It's a time of reckoning on so many levels. It's a time of reckoning on who's been at the table and who's been absent and why. Why? And there is no doubt that geopolitics, in the case of international education, plays a major role in that, and that the global north has definitely dominated and continues to dominate much of the discourse that takes place. But one of the things that I would also urge us to think about is that the global north is not monolithic. Within the global north are marginalized societies, marginalized communities, and our ability to, in many ways, ally with those marginalized societies is one of the things that in particular with the nature of my work, it's really forced me to think about what is the intersection of that. And so I would say things are changing and not because we've done anything as much to change it, but conditions are pushing us to really relook at and re-examine where we are. Um, and in many ways interrogate what is going on within our within our society and within our community at large. Um, and the other piece about this is that the truth of the matter is, right again, we know this, The global South is not waiting for the global North. Mm -hmm. The global South is not waiting for the global North. They've been moving and they continue to move at a pace of speed. It is us that will be left behind if we really do not open our eyes and our minds to what is going on in the rest of the world. The youth bulge that is taking place in lots of places in the global South is really a time for renewal. It is a renaissance as I see it. You're seeing young entrepreneurs, you're seeing really tremendous good work coming out of the Global South in both how they're thinking about the issues, but more importantly, how they're actively engaging to solve them. So they're not waiting for the Global North. They've not not had to wait for the Global North for solutions. They know the solutions to how they can handle the situations that are there. And the same way that I see international students being infantilized, the same way I see the Global North infantilizing the Global South. And that, to me, is where the problem really lies. There is an assumption that knowledge is produced And that good knowledge and important knowledge is produced in the North and it makes its way to the South. And I would like to refute that. I would like to indicate that now there is equally important knowledge and in some cases even better knowledge that's coming out of the South. And that is not new. If one is to look at history, history really in many ways has taught us that. And so our ability to show a humility being in the global North and b to understand that we have so much to learn from the global South and where the global South is one of the preconditions for how we can shift where we are and how we can shift sort of the center of gravity. And so that's a bit of sort of what I'm most excited about and where I'm going to continue to push the envelope. Am I going to be able to do it alone? Absolutely not. But do I, having a seat at the table, have a responsibility to do so? Absolutely is the case.
1: Wow. I, I love everything you just said, um, Fanta, and also sort of uh, really challenging this characterization that you know in some ways uh, what the global north has to offer is superior. I mean that that's how it's been for years, but that to continue to believe in that is sort of almost patronizing. So we have sort of the infantilizing of students and sort of the patronizing approach at the more country level to uh, global south countries. And you're absolutely right that um, you know with the with the. Demographic dividend coming out of India and certainly Africa, even more so than India. We know that all of the world's future talent is going to come from Africa, just in terms of numbers. And so, really, we need to be thinking about all of these issues in a very in a very different manner. And we've had some other guests on this show where we've talked quite a bit about this issue of uh, future global talent um, coming from um, Africa. So, so sort of shifting uh, or, or sort of building upon the seat at the table that you mentioned that you now occupy, which is a very, very important seat. And just to remind our listeners, very recently, you took the helm at NAFSA um, as its new executive director and CEO. And your appointment really represents many firsts. You and, and I'm gonna list them. You will be, if I'm not mistaken, the first foreign born immigrant origin woman of color to lead a major higher education association in the US. And I have to say, Fanta, I just I literally get chills as I think of that. And I'm just so happy and so proud as I think through all of those firsts because I I really think that this this is so very important. Um, And to add to that list, you are also, as you described for us, a former um, international student at various points in your life um, to the U.S. and to other countries from the global south. So, my question is, what do you think breaking all of these barriers means for the? and what do you think your, your appointment means for the association?
0: Oh, wow, uh, Rajika. First of all, let me start by saying is, um, you know, there's a saying, be careful what you ask for, <laughs> because you might actually get it. And then the question is, what do you do with that? And so I start with that just as a point of reflection. Um, I am elated and sad at the same time. Um, and I think that that duality is, is important um, for me to, to amplify that. I'm elated Um, That we're in a time in 2023 where we can have this conversation and where two, uh, you know, women from the global south can have this discussion the way we're having it and being having the opportunity to lead in different ways. This tells me that times are changing. It is sad that it's in 2023. And my um, my metric for success will be when we will not have to say first. Mm -hmm. That would be the metric. The metric to me will be when I look around and I can see so many, so many like myself um, and where this is no longer the thing, but it is just considered that that's just how things happen, right? And so we know we're not there yet. And, you know, so Rajika, we're not naive to think that we're there. We know that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. With that said, it also means often I often say with privilege come responsibility. And I take that responsibility very, very seriously. So what this means to me is that women who are of a younger generation than we are can see and in seeing can know that the possibilities are real. They're no longer the distant future, they're the present. And that alone, I think, is significant and is important. I want our daughters, I want our nieces, I want them to see that this is their future and that they in many ways deserve a seat at the table and that it is not a, it's not charity to give them a seat at the table, that they have earned their place at the table. But then it also means that the table may need to look different mm-hmm. because I've been in places and spaces where I've been the first many times before and I've had a seat at the table and one of the things that people have known me to do is once at the table, I'm not satisfied with the table just being the same table. And we just or two um, around that table is I often will push and say we need a different table. We need a table where listening will happen in a different way. We need a table where we're going to have the kind of mind shift that is needed in order to make progress so that it's not tokenized. Right. It is not tokenized because that's really how real change happens. It's not enough to have a seat at the table is what happens as a result of having a seat at the table. Now that I'm in this role, I will be looking out for that. I will be looking out for what are the mirrors of ways that we are creating opportunities and understanding that those opportunities are not about, you know, doing a favor. It's really about the fact that when we are not doing that, we have denied the talent that we know is the sheer talent that exists. And as a result, we're not operating even at 50% of our capacity. So that's the premise from which I come, and that's the spirit in which I come with this Um, The other piece about, you know, uh, first is that, you know, we live in a time and in a world where um, our ability to understand, our ability to engage differently is ever more important at a time of tremendous polarization, of tremendous protectionism and so forth. And I'm going to say this, and some of the folks who are listeners here will take issue with this, but people who know me know that I'm very upfront and here. Yes. I, I think the other piece about this is that women are more needed in leadership.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Empathetic leadership is important and empathetic leadership is not a weakness. It is an absolute asset. And so this, you know, we've seen this before, we've heard this before in so many parts of the world. We have said when women are left behind, it is society as a whole that is left behind. It is families that are left behind. I will use the same analogy here. When major organizations that are trying to shift things and are trying to really get to a place of change, when women are not at the numbers that they need to be and can be, I would argue that it is organizations that are left behind.
1: Very well said. And I could not agree more. And um, it's it's an issue I care about deeply as well. In fact, we've had a number of, because of my interest in women and leadership and, and gender issues, we've had a number of guests on this show, Fanta, in um, including uh, the wonderful Gloria Blackwell, who's uh, the CEO of the American Association of University Women and others, to talk about exactly these um, sorts of issues. And you're absolutely right that even in um, the broader nonprofit sector, it's all too common to see that but you look at the rest of the staff, a majority might be female, but the minute you approach the higher ranks of leadership, that flips and that that proportionality is not reflected in roles of uh, of uh, leadership. And, and this is true of boards as well, where I'm always challenging organizations where, you know, you look at the board makeup. And it's uh primarily male. And if you raise the question of where are the women, the answer always is, oh, but we have a very large staff that, that's female, but we're talking about that ascent into higher ranks of leadership on who's at the table and who's making the decisions. And so yes, I, I love um all of those points you made. And so just to follow up on that, and I I like that you admit that you're candid and you're not you're not gonna sugarcoat anything <laughs> because this next question is really about our field. And I know that we've, you know, in international education, again, broadly defined, we've um, really, over these past few years, struggled with this idea of how do we diversify? How do we be more inclusive? It's all sort of, as you sort of characterized earlier in the conversation, sort of come to a head as sort of this whole movement has also played out globally. But do you think, and I want your honest assessment. Do you think that we, that when it comes to diversifying um, the international education profe- uh, profession as it currently stand, do you, uh, stands, do you think we've made we've made any progress? Uh,
0: there is always room for much more, right? I mean, there's definitely room for much more. Um, and I have to tell you, maybe also because I had been in the classroom for a period of time teaching. Um, and part of the reason, frankly, Rajika I decided to do that was specifically because I felt that we needed to build that pipeline. Mm-hmm. To build that pipeline, it was not only having subject matter expertise, but that our students needed to see different faces and different people in these roles um, to not only believe that it is possible, but also to learn from. And so I remember distinctly in my classroom starting to see that shift. In that, A, it was more women coming in, but also I started to see more women of color and more men of color mm. slowly starting to come in, and international students coming into the field. So when I look at the demographic of who is here now, I would venture to say that we probably have diversified more than we currently have data to fully support. And that's an area that I think we really need to investigate more. But from what I'm seeing, and maybe part of it is because of they seeing me in this role, there's more outreach from such members, and maybe that's as a result of it. I may be, there may be that bias. I may be skewed in my thinking because of of the kind of outreach that I'm receiving. But I would want to venture to say that it is probably beginning to diversify. Um, Maybe not at the speed that we'd like to see it happen, but it is starting to happen. With that said, what we need to do is we need to be very intentional. If we want to diversify this in the way that we do, we need to not only put a call out, but we need to have it part of our everyday practice. What does that mean? It means that every part of what we're doing, we need to ask ourselves a question. Can we do more? What is the representation? Because representation actually really does matter. It does. I think all too often we say, well, you know, no, no, it actually really matters. Representation matters. I can tell you from my work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field, it absolutely matters. So we need to think about our entire ecosystem and ask ourselves, What are the various touch points? And understanding that that pipeline needs to be built actually even younger and earlier. Yes. Much younger and earlier, right? Our abilities to plant those seeds and to keep watering those plants is incredibly important. But then once we've watered those plants and people have the appetite, we need to open the doors of opportunities. We need to stop saying we can't find them. We need to stop saying that. You know, I would hear often, well, you know, we're looking, but we can't find. Well, maybe the reason is you're not looking hard enough. Or maybe what you're looking for really in many ways is part of your own implicit bias that you have not really reckoned with and that you probably need to admit and to kind of recognize. So those are some of the things that we need to really examine closely. Um, and then there's also this piece. And I will say this as well as someone who is, uh, is very candid. It is not because you have a person Either it's a woman or a person of color that is in these seats that it means that it automatically will happen. The mindset of who is in those seats is important because as we very well know, colonization of the mind is real. It's real. And so you have to work at it. You have to be intentional about that. And you have to every single day hold yourself accountable to say, what progress am I making? And then what progress are we making collectively?
1: really really important um, important points and um of course being a researcher i love your point about data because you're absolutely right that we all rely on data to sort of measure ourselves and see where the, where the field is and um in fact on a related note one of the projects that i'm currently involved in is trying to map even how many foreign born immigrant university and college leaders we have in the US because, as you well know, the face of academic leadership is changing in the US, right? Many of them have come from different immigrant pathways, including being former international students. So, I'm actually working with the President's Alliance on that because we suddenly realized that there's this huge gap where we we don't know this, and actually, most of the existing surveys of uh, presidents in the U.S. don't actually capture this information at all. So, you're absolutely right that that uh, we don't know what we don't know if we don't <laughs> if we don't we don't have the data. So, all really excellent uh, points. And,
0: and this is so timely that you raised this because this was one of the first things that came to my mind in coming to my role within NAFSA was to say. What do we know mm-hmm. about the state of affairs and how has it shifted, right? And so this question about, you know, who do we know to be international students who have a seat at the table at the, you know, whether they're provost level, their president's level, their dean's level, et cetera, actually really matters. And by the same token, who are American students who have studied abroad? And exactly. that have come back with that orientation is absolutely data. And, and um, we need that information to really know what's the state of affairs within leadership roles, within institutions. So I'm glad that the Alliance, kudos to the Alliance and you for working on that. And that is data that many of us really are eager to to hear and to see more of.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's also that we also need to know this because these are the advocates and the champions whose energy and passion, as you said earlier, we need to harness collectively. So I think that's the other reason to also also know this. Yeah. Um, so Fanta, we've, we've talked, um, quite a bit about NAFSA and, and some of your other work, but I want to go back to sort of you as, um, an individual now, and, uh, you know, you're of course a very seasoned leader. You've, um, NAFSA is not new to you. You've been the chair of the board earlier on, but this is a new role. And it's a new set of opportunities and challenges. And, and you, as you said earlier, you are um, elated yet sad. But my question to you is, what excites you and what really scares you about it?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, well, let's first start with what scares me. Let's start with that. Um, what scares me is um, knowing where the field is and where the field is going um, is ensuring that an organization like NAFSA is one um, that is positioned for its future and that the NAFSA of the past um, will have to shift in order to be the NAFSA of the future. And I think what's scary about that is that the world is constantly evolving. We are evolving. Um, Our members are evolving, etc. And so the ability to size up those different components to understand what is the NAFSA of the present and the future uh, can be one that can be daunting. So That's probably the part that scares me. And in a way, I'm glad that it scares me because um, that is a good challenge to have. I think it's a great challenge to have because it also then, at the same time, that's what excites me, is this ability to reimagine. And in reimagining, not starting from ground zero, in the sense that there is really strength and legacy that is here, is to build upon that legacy, but not be afraid to know that change is coming and that in change coming... Uh, we need to embrace that fully. And this is where my global nomad and my third culture experience comes in is not be afraid of change. I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to work in partnership with so many people who care deeply about this field and are thinking every day about the state of the field. That is also what excites me. And knowing that I'm not only alone, but NAFSA is not alone as an organization to think about that. Whether it's the President's Alliance, whether it's so many other stakeholders, our ability to work together will be the strength of how we can then determine the course of where the fields go. And then also, because as we said earlier, we have a younger generation that is coming and our ability to listen and to hear that younger generation and to harness all of their energy is an opportunity for us as an organization. Um, And so when I think about those things, this this is an interesting time to be in our field. It's a really interesting time to be in our field Um, There's been many moments when we've said the field is going to shift. There's going to be disruption in the field, and Rajika, it has not really happened to the level that we've predicted. In some Mm -hmm. levels, we've now said the pandemic is going to be that time, and I'm waiting to see whether or not that's really going to be the disruption, or whether that disruption is really going to be about different people at the table.
1: Yes, yes. That what does disruption really mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we've. Um, during the pandemic, we've sort of almost chosen to define it uh, more programmatically in sort of the what of our field and how we are doing it. So the what and how, but not so much who.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and I think and I think in order to really get to the what, we have to start with the who. Yes, absolutely. I think the who is really the first. That's the starting question, and I also really. All too often, I find that when these conversations happen, it happens with a zero-sum mindset in that there has to be winners and there has to be losers. And perhaps call me Pollyannish, but I don't believe that it has to be so. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I actually believe the zero-sum mindset is what holds us back and that we need to be at a time where we can imagine that in order for the global north to continue to be what it is, it absolutely needs the global south, right, as an example, and that that balance is important because of the interdependencies. And likewise I believe that in order for international education to thrive in the in, you know in this century that we need to align ourselves with others who have similar missions but they may not be calling it the same and they may have a different vision and I think that's what's going to strengthen our work in international education. So this piece of a zero sum game is something that I think we need to stay away from, and the binary thinking is another thing that I think we need to guard ourselves from.
1: Very, very true. I couldn't agree more. So, Fanta, we are approaching the end of our conversation, but I have two other things I really want to ask you about. Um, As I said earlier, I love um, hearing from women leaders. I love uh, being able to share their wisdom and insights, and I know you talked a little bit about this earlier but if you were to sort of um, summarize some of your wisdom and advice for, as you said, you know, even the next generation in our field, right, um, who aspire to roles of leadership, who aspire to be, uh, for example, someone like you, what would be some two or three key, key, key pieces of advice that you would share?
0: So um, last year, My mantra was release all fears.
1: Mm.
0: Release all fears. Um, And I would give this advice to to women leaders and I would give this advice to women who are um, ascending to leadership role. Release all fears. Two is believe that it is possible. That is the second advice, you know, that I would give is believe that it is possible. The third advice that I would give is that um, we, should not be, we should not be apologizing for um, believing and knowing that change is needed. I think all too often we are tentative about those things and yet there's everything around us that signals that. And I would say it's not change for change's sake. It's change because we believe that this world deserves better and we believe that for the next generation, we have an obligation to leave the world a little bit better than we have found it. So that's a little bit of how I go. This is sort of my orientation to my work on a daily basis, is that I wake up in the morning with really the goal of asking myself, what have I done today? And not what I have done from a checklist perspective and the number of meetings and everything else, but rather, what have I accomplished in small ways today, Right. Was I able to be in a place and in a space where in listening, it has allowed me to think differently about where we are and where we could go? Was I willing to take a chance on someone perhaps, even though it may be someone who had a very different orientation to mine? Because that is when the opportunity for growth and that is when the opportunity for change happens. So that is really my advice, is release all fears, believe that it is possible. And the third is, don't be apologetic for wanting change.
1: That is so important, uh, Fanta, and um, I can I can attest to all three of those. And I don't think there's anybody out there who's reached any kind of level of significant uh, leadership or any woman who would probably who wouldn't say that that rings absolutely true. Because uh, the the other way of sort of also saying it is is you know there's the phrase the imposter syndrome, and as we know. We women can suffer from it for a very, very long time. So I think everything that you've said, those three key pieces of advice, I think uh, will resonate with um, a lot of people, and they remain true and valid today as as they have as they have always been. So uh, those are really, really helpful. My last question to you: mm-hmm. You've of course accomplished so much, Uh, a lot of what we've also sort of covered in our conversation today, you've had such a uh, rich and diverse career. What is one thing, and it can be something really small, something really big that you're most proud of?
0: Oh, um, what I'm most proud of, actually, Rajika, as I think about this, is that throughout the various chapters of my life, I've tried um, hard and I would say intentionally to each time figure out how do I uplift another person? Um, and that has come in multiple forms, whether it's the student, you know, that I've had in my classes and trying to push them one step further while being there to support, whether it's the mentorship that I believe it's not us who determine who our mentors are. It is our it's the mentee that seeks the mentor and not the other way around and haven't had the opportunity to mentor in lots of different ways. And um, and so to me, the thing I'm most proud of and what I hope I will be remembered for is not the titles that I've, that I've occupied. It's not so much the spaces that I've occupied is how I've made people feel. Um, there is this saying in particular that I say a lot um, that is from Maya Angelou, right? And it's really this powerful saying, that people will not remember what you you know what you, what you've done people will not remember what you said people will remember how you made them feel and there's something about that that really speaks to my soul and i hope that the thing that i'm most proud of is that whenever i was in a space whenever i was in a place um, whenever i could uplift someone the ability to make them feel valued to be seen and to be heard is probably i would say the most important thing for me. And that's what I'm probably most proud of.
1: I love those words by Maya Angelou as well. So thank you for sharing those and reminding us of the power of those uh, words and what they mean. And with that, Fanta, I want to... Thank you for being the inspiring friend and person and colleague that you are for your incredible leadership in our field, not just for NAFSA, but our entire field. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today.
0: And Rajika, I would be remiss in, um, before leaving, not expressing my gratitude to you. Um, you know, part of what makes this work what it does is that we learn from each other and we've had the opportunity to engage for a very long time. You are a dear friend um, and you have had, you've been a trailblazer in so many ways, uh, whether it is really helping us understand um, what is behind data and not just data, but what are the stories behind that and bringing that alive has been one of the contributions that you've made and that I have been grateful for. And then really more recently, congratulations in your book, America Calling. Um had the opportunity to read it. And I have to tell you, as I read it, I also cried. Um, I cried because it spoke so much to the story of international students and their journey of both resilience and the complexities of it. And it was so it's been so needed that I'm just thrilled that you have opened up that space and that dialogue. And in many ways, you have normalized it for all of us that this is one of those stories that needs to be told needs to be heard, and more importantly, um, really just is uplifting on so many levels. And so I just wanted to say also just congratulations um, on really all of the work that you've done and that you continue to do on behalf of the field. Um, it means a lot. It means a lot. Um, so thank you for this opportunity to be in dialogue with you.
1: Thank you so much, Fanta. You, I'm actually feeling emotional hearing this. So thank you. Um, that means more than you know to have you say those words and i of course uh, also want to thank you for being at uh, one of uh, the best launch events for the book and sharing your thoughts about it and um, and what it sort of meant uh, to you but also in a broader sense what it means for our field so i'm deeply indebted to you thank you again and i look forward uh, really look forward to continuing to work alongside you in our field thank you fanta Fanta always leaves me feeling so inspired and reminding me of why I do the work that I do. If you enjoyed this conversation, also be sure to listen to Episode 8 of the podcast, which featured Dr. Lenitra Berger, the current president of NAFSA. That was a great conversation as well, and where we also talked about art and social justice and Lenitra's work as an art historian. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also grab a copy of my book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, whose themes are reflected in everything that we talk about in this podcast. And last but not the least, this episode was brought to you by the generous support of Empower Financing, which provides no co-signer loans and scholarships for international, DACA and refugee students. To date, Empower has helped tens of thousands of students fund their educational dreams and journeys. Be sure to check them out at www.empowerfinancing.com That's Empower starting with an M, empowerfinancing.com Thanks as always for listening. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari and I look forward to being back with you soon with another episode on how education helps connect our hearts and minds to the world.